Hello there, welcome back to Faith with Haith. We are still in lockdown in the UK, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. And uh, really the story of this podcast has been, well, it's one of lockdown. It started in lockdown and here we still are, but hopefully uh, there's, well, hopefully there is hope and uh, we can soon be back to normal. And today is an exciting day because we've had 43 episodes so far and we have just gone through the 20,000 downloads and listens to this podcast. So thank you to everyone so much for, for listening and supporting. And, and there's no one I would rather share this special moment with than my guest today. He is the Reverend Dr. Peter Howarth. Hello, Peter. Hi, Jamie. How are you doing? Uh, I'm okay, thank you. Yeah, I what decided you... to go for a run this morning, um, which looked like a brilliant idea at ten past eight when the the sun was shining, and then turned out to be the world's worst idea at twenty five past eight past eight when it just poured. Um, so I have a very soggy run and a pair of soggy trainers in the hall. But apart from that, I'm okay. I was doing the school run at that point, and mm. the heavens did open like I haven't mm. seen in a long time. And you were in it. I was. I was running and running and running. And it, when it gets that wet, um, it's not just your clothes that get soaked It's your uh, and your shoes. Um, it's everything starts to kind of rub and chafe. And um, yeah, you're just a... <laughs> I thought you were going to say then it's not just your clothes that gets wet, it's your very soul. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I have damp and soggy soul in general, but um, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you're going to bring me out. So here's the thing. You are a reverend doctor, which sounds very impressive. You are a professor, which every time we chat, I am sort of slightly in awe of. But your professorship is not in theology and churchy stuff. It's actually in English, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Yes, I, I, I am a, um, a professor at Queen Mary University of London. Um, and I, that's been my home for 12, 13 years now. Um, and I came into the church um, late um, uh, in the last kind of six, seven, eight years um, have been my, my journey in. So, um, uh, yes, I, I, I haven't gone. I have, normally, it's the other way around, like you say. So I'd love to dig into uh, literature first, first and foremost, um, and how you first got a love for, for literature. What's your specialty? At the, at, what are you teaching mostly at the moment? So I teach mostly uh, modern literature um, and especially poetry, um, which always slightly surprised me because I was not one of those dreamy kids who hung around and just loved poetry and um, didn't really want to think about anything else except flowers and trees and grass and things. Um, I It was just that when other people wrote about poetry, um, at least as it seemed to me when I was an undergraduate, um, they just didn't get it. Um, and I just so I kept writing um, about what seemed to me to be there and other people kept liking it. Um, so it's almost as if I didn't feel I had any special yen for poetry, but other people just seemed to find it much harder work than I did. I mean, it isn't not that poetry isn't hard work. It is. And, you know, your, your head really hurts sometimes. But um, yeah, it, it, it was more just being able to press open a door that other people couldn't seem to open. Um, I teach a lot of other literature things as well, obviously novels and um, um, non-fiction stuff. One of the things I love about English is that it's such an octopus of a subject. Um, you're reading a novel or you're, you're reading a play or something 
And to know what's going on there, you need a working knowledge of psychology and you need um, some idea of the big economic and social currents that are around at the time and you need an idea of the um, social conditions um, and history um, that's around and you need some race theory and you, you know you, you need some everything um, just to get at this extraordinarily complex thing you're reading and experiencing and I think I, I like English for that for that sense of reach I've uh, just been my one of my daughters my eldest is doing as you know, she's doing mock A-levels at the moment, mm. although she's, I think they're, they're only internal, as we know, for this year. Mm. And uh, one of the things that I've been doing with her is, is the unseen. What do you call that exactly, where you take a passage that you've never read before and, mm. and pull it apart? Um, it's called close reading. Um, and it was a technique invented by a professor called I.A. Richards um, when in one of the very first syllabuses for English developed at Cambridge in the 20s. Um, and it's a thing of great strength and a thing of great awfulness as well. And a lot of the kind of feudal uh, um, territory disp um, disputes within English um, have been about this, this very thing, because it's incredibly good at um, helping you tease apart the language and to see, you know, something's funny with the grammar here and that's really changing how I'm in being invited to see this or where I'm being positioned as a reader. Um, or something that that's a very unusual choice of word. Um, what is that telling you about this person's attitudes, conscious or unconscious? Um, and it's superb for doing that, but it's great problem is that it lacks that connection between um, where this writing came from and who made it for what real audience. Um, uh, it, what was its sort of circulation in the world? Um, so it, it's very close up, but it's not very good at the, the large scale things. And again, I think that's one of the things I most like about English is that you do get to move from the micro to the macro scale. Um, you are analysing, you know, three lines of Shakespeare, but those three lines include a whole history of, you know, where Western yes. cartography. Um, uh, where, 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 where do you where do you put the centre of, 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 of Shakespeare's world? Because not necessarily in London, uh, most of his plays seem to be centred on Italy. Um, uh, what? Yeah, uh, and, and and in those three lines, yeah, geography, um, the Reformation, um, you know, the sense of power play within the Elizabethan court, blah 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 blah. But it's all still also working with the fact that there's a line break in a funny place in the middle of that speech <laughs> from the Merchant of Venice. <laughs> Well, if you, if you, um, the lovely thing about what I now know as close reading is that it's, 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 it's hyper analytical, isn't it? And you find yourself sitting there with a text in a way that you, you just don't read like that when you read a novel. Mm. So the same, the same passage mm. from a book, you wouldn't read in the same way. Um, you're putting it under the microscope and, and you, you feel so much closer to the author as a result. Yes. And, you, and, no, I was just going to say, and, mm. but, and, and the lovely thing is, you, there's so much richness, there's, mm. so, there's a wealth there, and you can write, you know, you, as you're supposed to, you write this essay about what is probably only 750 words on a page, mm. rather than the entire book, and, and there's no wrong answer, is that mm. true? Um, there, are, there are answers that are more persuasive and less persuasive, I okay. would say. I mean... Your ideal as a critic um, is to write something and for your reader to be able to say, oh, yes, you've shown me something that I sort of half intimated was there, but I didn't have the words for. Or you've articulated a feeling that, that, that 
I didn't even articulate to myself, but now you've said it, I know what you mean. Um, mm. That's that's the aim. Um, and it's interesting you mentioned close reading. It, it has, um, I've actually written um, a, a part of a book about this. Um, it, its origins actually come from the First World War, of all things. There was a poet called Robert Graves um, who went mm. into the war um, and um, obviously got post-traumatic stress disorder, as, as so many did. Um, and when he came back, he was treated by one of the very first um, uh, psychoanalytic doctors, um, uh, a guy called Rivers, W.H.R. Rivers. Um, Pat Barker has written a trilogy about, about this whole, uh, about Rivers and, and, and the work he did with First World War um, pay, um, soldiers. Uh, Rivers was not a kind of orthodox Freudian in any way, but he did um, give Graves the idea that the nasty dreams he was having were symbolising some of the traumas that he'd gone through, and some of them in the war and some of them before the war. Um, um, but his dreams' capacity to make symbols um, were actually his mind's attempt to heal itself. And Graves took this idea and um, a kind of light bulb went off in his head in about 1921, 1922 and said, this is where art comes from. Art is basically made by the artist um, dreaming up symbols and words um, in combination, which manage to reconcile the split parts of the mind um, that, 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 that by daily life are, are kept apart. And then I.A. Richards um, read this um, and um, connected it to what we're now calling close reading and saying, when you do that close reading, that's what's happening to you too. You're enabling yourself uh, to come close to the artist and see how different parts of their mind um, and your own mind um, are, are being brought together. So it's this great experience of reunification of the conscious and the unconscious. Um, but that side of it got rather lost um, as it got turned into a school discipline um, and, it, and it seemed to be just like a, a sort of forensic um, analysis of putting a text under them on, as you say under the microscope um, which means that you're not involved in it but originally um, it was actually seen as a kind of collaborative art process um, so that your reading contribution was making you take part in this experience um, that we that we call art. What is the place for poetry in the modern world? Um, well, it's, I think it's got a lot, actually. Um, and I think people know that. It's just that a lot of it's not called poetry. It's called rap or it's called um, spoken word. Um, I have a very minimalistic um, um, term for poetry or definition of poetry, which is anything where the language, where the timing matters. Because um, I think the, the basic unit of poetry is the moment when you have a line break. And when you have a line break, that means the length of the line is short or long and the length matters. And then when the length matters, then you're putting words where the timing in relation to them, uh, to each other matters. And then you can build up patterns of sound and so on and so on from there. So, I mean, I, th I think there are plays in which there are dialogue which become poetry because the dialogue has a kind of rhythm to it. Um, and I think there's poetry that you read on your own in the lamplight, under the lamplight, as T.S. Eliot says. Um, and I think there's a great deal of poetry that you hear going round your head because you're listening to it in shops, because that's what's playing over the speakers. Um, and the amount of poetry that people are absorbing through music, um, through through what people are, are saying, 
um, through any experience of, of timed speech, timed careful speech, is actually quite a lot. Um, but I think it starts to, to to really work as poetry when it won't go out of your head. Um, you know, when you're sitting in the bath and a line comes back to you, um, and hmm. it's something that that your memory has kind of it's sunk into your memory and you don't know, and then it and then it comes back to you, um, and that's the point where you think, oh yeah. Um, that that was speaking to me, or that's the way it is, or that's how I'm feeling right now. Um, so, so do ear, you think the there will worm. ever <laughs> the earworm? Do you think there'll ever come a time when students in twenty, thirty years' time will mm. will pick apart the lyrics of Elbow or Mumford and Sons? And because I, I refer the, the, you the, to Adam Bradley's The Poetry <laughs> of Pop, Yale University <laughs> Press, twenty seventeen, um, um, where he does exactly that. Um, and some of it's good and some of it's less good. I mean, I have to say, I, there's a great deal of poetry in the world and as in the history of all poetry, there's a great deal of very bad poetry in the world. Most poetry in most times has been pretty bad. Um, but once you're okay with that, um, then, then, then you don't have to go around thinking that um, uh, there's no good poetry left. Um, uh, there's, lots of, there's lots of poetry in songs, but um, most of it can be quite bad. But there are... There are these moments, um, sometimes in the middle of the most terrible songs, um, which are just completely glorious because because of that combination of a word said and articulated in a particular way that really, you know, gets to the heart of the thing. And sometimes it's the way it's said and the timing of it that has all the meaning, um, and, uh, and and turns it from a completely banal thing on the page to um, something that's just fantastic. So you write about it, you teach about it, but do mm. you actually? And there's no right or wrong answer with this. Uh, do you actually write poetry yourself? Uh, no, I don't actually. I've tried, um, and I, I tried when I was times of great unhappiness. Um, but it's not terribly good. Um, my my, uh, and I, and I know that, and I'm okay with that. Um, I'm actually, in a way, a little bit relieved because it is true that a lot of the people who write about poetry are poets themselves, and poetry, the world of poetry, by which we mostly mean page poetry. Um, uh, is uh, is is a, it's a, it's a small affair um, and can be quite venomous um, because the amount of attention given to novels, the amount of sales given to novels. When people think about literature, they think about novels, um, and if you mention poetry generally, they just connect it with your daughter's experience of sitting there looking at a text, not knowing what to say about it, and yeah. feeling terrible. Um, so ultimately the kind of framing experience for poetry is I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough um, and that's why people hate it and poets themselves, that's not they never intended that but it's one of the, the awful consequences of, of, of so much poetry being taught so badly um, um, and the <laughs> so the, the, the idea that it um, that the, the, yeah, most people are put off most most poetry. Um, I think. Um, sorry, Jamie, I've forgotten what your original question was. No, I was just talking about you being a writer yourself. I mean, you know, uh, I know yeah. that uh, a lot of people during lockdown have felt, well, this is a change. This is, uh, you know, anything. Everything's up for grabs here. A lot of mm. people have started mm. painting. Some mm. people have got uh, significantly fitter. Others mm -hmm. have got significantly fatter. Um, <laughs> <you know. laughs> um, uh, I did hear one quite funny quote the other day that says, lockdown has turned you either into a, a, a chunk, a hunk, mm -hmm. or a drunk. So <laughs> I think uh, 
I think we can all testify to a little bit of some of all of that. But um, a lot of people have sort of turned to other things and hobbies and mm. especially creativity. Mm. Um, and many people I know have started writing. Mm. Um, I'd love to, to touch on what, how you find that process of writing. Mm. You're yeah. in a reading week right now, aren't you? Mm. So you, so presumably you've had to sort of get your nose to the grindstone a bit. Well, actually, very rarely I, ha- I haven't this week. I've um, I, I I learned from lockdown one not to try and do homeschool and teaching and write a book. Um, you just can't do it, and it nearly killed me. Um, so as soon as homeschooling two started, I I uh, called my publishers and said, you know what I said I could do? I can't do it, um, and that. They were surprisingly okay with that because um, uh, I just knew it was going to be two, three months of, of really having most of the day taken up with one thing or another. So mm. the result is for the first time in years, years and years, um, I have been reading in reading week rather than writing. <laughs> no one reads in reading week. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's for, right. it's for um, PlayStation, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, 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 it is. Yeah. Um, but I do think there's a, although I'm not creative, um, um, myself my i mean i'm i i, I do music that's where my cre- really creative side comes out um but the the writing process i think there is a creativity in being able to write well about other people um to to what i've always sought to do is to, when i'm writing about somebody is to inside everybody i think is a sort of magic word or a magic sentence where if you can get it it kind of explains a great deal about them uh, and I'm always on the look for what I sense to be the the magic word or the the inner inner sentence of that person's way of being, um, and I'm trying to just describe it and draw it out. Um, so a little bit like an analysis, but sometimes the magic word is is not not something that they themselves are consciousness conscious of. It's just the word that you would use to explain what fascinates them and also where they sit in the events of the world which they often have very little control over um and i don't mean that there's only one word there's there's lots of words but i'm trying to find the one in which i can draw together a lot of threads of their life and i think that that's quite an intuitive process and and writing about that can be quite creative though it also involves a huge amount of struggle and wrestling and you know hours of cleaning out the cupboards and doing anything rather than writing Um, (laughs) anything anything i mean do it, yeah. I won't tell you what I've bought on eBay to avoid writing a book. <laughs> little bit of retail therapy. So what are you write, What are you actually writing at the moment? So at the moment I am on the last but one chapter of um, a big book I've been writing for ages called The Poetry Circuit, which is a book about what happened when somebody invented decent enough microphones for um, poets to be able to read in public. Um, and it sounds a very innocuous thing. It happened around the time of the in the 30s and the Second World War. Um, But what it meant was that poets could actually meet their public, um, which they'd never really had to do before. Poets read all the time, but they tended to read to small groups um, of of intimates, or a few of them were really good and they were actors and they they knew how to hold the stage. Um, But what we're after is something between those two venues where suddenly quite ordinary poets read and of course they read and then they 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 go on tours and the the reading starts to subsidize the books and then it starts to become more profitable than than the books and the whole economy of poetry changes and my big idea is that when you realize that it's actually you can then connect it to the way that poets wrote different stuff um that the rise of say confessional writing um where 
poets would start to tell intimate truths about themselves dates from this period and I think it can't be understood without realising that poets are not only writing this stuff but reading it and it's the shock effect um, of being in the room with somebody who is telling you something that you are a bit uncomfortable with knowing whether you should know that about them um, and it, it, there's a sort of theatrical dynamic there which then um, really makes the poems come alive it's not actually in the content of the of the you know disclosure it's in the sort of theater of discomfort that it provokes i think that's one of those direct kind of moves in poetry that wouldn't be possible were it not for the for for the poetry circuit and and, and the rise of the of the reading so that's what the book's about wow um, that's fascinating and that brings us on perfectly to your other main hat in life well your your main hat in life is as a husband and a father yeah. but but your other main hat, which is as a Church of England priest. Um, and I suppose the way to frame this question is, is it that, that draw towards the honesty of the poet, the honesty of the author, seeing to the heart of people? Is that why you love being a priest? Why, why did, how on earth did you become a priest in the first place if you're busy being a professor of English? I mean, mm. yes, it doesn't seem fair that you've got two jobs. Yeah, yes, one of life's overachievers, of course. It's because I'm, sh- I'm really short, which ex- explains so much about me. Um, actually, I, I mean, I think in the long history of it, um, a lot of priests in the Middle Ages ended up st- in universities, um, or some of them did. I mean, universities were originally theological colleges. Um, and without having any scientific basis for saying so, um, I think there's there's a sort of personality type uh, for people like me, um, mm-hmm. who uh, and, and a personality type which doesn't have its place in the modern world because various jobs have specialised. Um, mm. But um, in around 1280, the idea of somebody who was deeply committed to reading um, and that their deep committing to reading was related to a commitment to prayer and also then to care um, for people um, and, and a commitment to to reading you know to, to reading in public and to liturgy um and to reading as as experience um uh, an art and beauty that would have been much more obviously one thing i think um but since the the you know, universities secularized um and um the church went one way and the universities went the other mostly um but I, so I, I think basically i'm about 800 years out of my time um as <laughs> a, as a person um, I don't really mean that. I, I'm sure I would have hated being in a in a medieval university. Um, what I'm trying to say I is, think, that I think the dentistry back then was pretty. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. Well, the thing I think I really would have hated is that um, students were expected to sleep in little beds underneath the master's bed. Um, so what? That you, yes, there were these things called truckle beds, um, and uh, it's, so, so the master would would um, sleep on the bed, and then the student would sleep underneath um, in the little slidey out bed. You know, like your, when your kids have them. To, no. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I thought was, the pot went under the bed. If you know what I mean. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't get those two mixed up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dreadful. I mean, it's much more of a kind of master-apprentice um, relationship, and and something you see some of the same thing in kind of Buddhist temples um, nowadays um, uh, with monks. Wow. Um, but yeah, that was that. Anyway, I'm sure I would have absolutely hated. No, I wouldn't that. have enjoyed that. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely yeah. not. No, no, so, no. so tell me, how how did you? When did you first think? Hang on. Okay, so I'm a professor of English. Mm. This is my life calling. Mm. 
Um, but there's also something else going on in my heart. The only mm. reason I ask is because I, I, I do have conversations with people. Being, being ordained myself, people say, I, I, I kind of think maybe this is something that might be on my horizon, but I don't know if I'm just mm. making it up. Mm. Yeah. Um, people told me it's the long and the short of it. Um, I, 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 went, I, I've, I went to a number of very different churches for a number of different reasons. Um, if, simply by going local and being an Anglican, you can go to some wildly different ch- uh, churches if you just move around and then just go to the church around the corner, whatever it is. That's um, the only way. That's the only way they are wild, of course. <laughs> they're, they're wildly different, but <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah, not wild. Um, so, um, I, I, because of changing academic jobs um, and 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 m- moving around, um, I went to a number of different churches, um, from the very high to to the very low, um, and um, but what happened was, as I got to know the priests in in them, um, they each said to me, "You should be a priest." Um, and I said to each of them, "No, I'm an academic. That's 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 my calling. That's my my, my natural field. And I still do feel that um, the university is my is my parish. Um, uh, you know, that's my intuition for, for for the rest of my life. Is that that's where I'm called. I was born on the university campus, and I I suspect I'm meant to remain there. Um, but um, the fourth person to tell me you should be a priest, who was himself a priest, I said, "No, I'm an academic." Um, and um, he said, well, could you be both? Um, and I said, I didn't know you could be both. Um, and he said, uh, yeah, you can. Um, so I did a little research um, and um, some some digging and discovered that you could be both, um, and then started to think about what, what that bothness would mean. Um, and it was good because it was a bringing together of parts of me that have had to keep separate. Um, mm. I know I will teach in a secular university, uh, one that is deeply fearful of religion. Um, mm. And um, it, it, and generally the attitude uh, among uh, academics is that uh, religion is uh, embarrassing, uh, fascinating, mm. um, but fundamentally involves you in commitments to things which you can't intellectually justify and are therefore completely suspect. Um, mm. And it's seen um, as in that 18th century Enlightenment way as the realm of basically people mystifying things in order to oppress people. Um, it's, as, it's, it's as basic as that. Um, and therefore the modern university receives its kick from, from, from getting away from that. That's why it decouples from theology um, and decouples from um, religious institutions. Um, that's how you get away from that because religion is essentially seen as tyranny Um, and that idea is deeply bound up with all sorts of um, philosophical changes that are going on but it's still a practical emotional functional idea in a lot of the university Um, so to to be a both and like me um, is um, you are an anomaly Um, and that was one of the big pressures I've had to deal with I mean I'm one of my worst tendencies is wanting to be liked by lots of people and wanting to please too many people. Um, and in my darker times, I've sometimes wondered if I was becoming a priest just to please various people. Um, <laughs> but I think at least I can say that doing that within a university, I'm not, I'm not pleasing everybody um, by doing that. And so the process good. of calling for me was largely about, okay, these people believe in me. Do I believe in myself? Um, and how do I put together these seemingly impossibly disparate worlds? And yet, 
which are me, which I, I, I do live in both of them. Um, and so I am joining myself together in some way. Um, but that's a very deep and difficult process and involves confronting an awful lot of fears and doubts about oneself and, and one's vocation. Well, that's fantastic. And I do hope that is an encouragement to people listening because it really doesn't have to be an either or, as, mm. as you yourself have proved. And mm. you're bringing great richness to, uh, to, to both of those, those roles. We mm. serve together at St. George the Martyr. That's how we know each other. Mm. I, I started here, we also call ourselves Midtown London Church at the moment. Mm. Um, I started here 18 months ago. And I've got to say, you want people to like you. I like you. I think you're amazing. <laughs> and I'm so grateful. I want to say it publicly here. So grateful for our friendship and the fact that we are from quite different stables looking back, you know, sort of church-wise. But to be able to work together has been mm. such a blessing to me. Um, and you bring such a, a warmth and a depth and an intelligence, which there's not a lot of it when I'm around. So it's, uh, it's great that, that we get to work together. Thank you, Jamie. Well, you were a lot of fun to work with, too. Um, something somebody said to me um, when I was just starting in ministry was when you're thinking about where you want to be in a church, don't select according to the kind of church background of of the incumbent. Um, select on whether you like them. Um, church background matters nothing, but kind of actual capacity to work with somebody and, and get on with them matters far, far more. Um, and I've definitely found that to be the case. This is great. I'm enjoying this. It's a right old loving. <laughs> let's let's talk, uh, can, if we can, about um, faith in times of trial. I know that when we started out with the podcast, the little church podcast that we did of, um, at the beginning of the first lockdown, that's uh, that's where we went, faith in times of crisis. And you have first-hand knowledge of that, that actually life can be very difficult at times, challenging, excruciatingly painful. Um. Do you mind unpacking for us just just for a few moments your the, the story of your first marriage? Yes, of course. Um, so I met my first wife when we were at I was an undergraduate. She was on a junior year abroad, and um, um, I, I was quite smitten. Um, and I was smitten too because um, she seemed very keen on me. And to be honest, people hadn't been very keen on me up to that point. Um, I can't imagine why. Um, so um, uh, we, we, we hit it off and we spent um, uh, two or three years going back and forth across the Atlantic um, uh, together, keeping this relationship going and managing to spend, you know, periods of several months um, uh, in the year together. Um, and um, uh, so we got married um, and um, I was very happy and it was great. Um, but um, things started to go wrong actually very rapidly after we got married. Um, and it was almost as if the being married had kind of flipped a switch. Um, and um, increasingly, um, she felt quite constrained and um, would, would spend longer and longer out of the house um, and, and just didn't seem to want to be around. Um, and um, in the end, after about two and a half years, she she, she turned around to me and said, Peter, you're a nice person, but I've made a mistake. Um, I, I've, I, I, I've married somebody I like, but I, I don't love you. Um, and it was incredibly painful to hear. And of course, I didn't want to hear it. Um, and, and so I said, well, we, we can work it out. We can um, 
we we can move on. Let's 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 go to relate. Um, you know, I, I, it was just sort of unbelievable to me to to hear this, um, and so I thought you know we can fix it. Um, but as we did, it became increasingly obvious that that you know she she was right. She she couldn't manufacture a feeling she didn't have. Um, and that was very painful um, because you start to think, well, what was I doing? What role was I playing in your life? I, I felt as though I'd been used to to satisfy a need, um, which was actually to do with other things in in in, in her her life. Um, um, uh, there's a line in one of Ted Hughes's poems. I'm not comparing myself to Ted Hughes in any way because that would be deeply unflattering to me. Um, but there's a line in one of his um, uh, poems where he talks about. Um, uh, Sylvia Plath um, aiming a bullet um, at what he thought was him um, and then he ducks and realises that she was aiming over his shoulder at somebody else and that's the feeling I had um, that I was caught up in this. So we agreed to separate and um, the, uh, I was still really hoping um, that uh, at some level that, that, that it could work out but um, I over time, as time went on, I realised that it was just not going to happen. And she'd met somebody else and actually was um, planning to have children with him very quickly. Um, and in the long run, um, I have come to accept and be grateful for her honesty. Um, you can't fake a feeling. And no matter that she had been faking it to herself for a while, um, that I was grateful for the honesty. Um, and at least you know. Um, she did the right thing, uh, I think, um, but it obviously was immensely painful and sent me into quite a lot of time, um, you know, with therapists and counsellors and, and so on. And um, to be honest, actually, more than therapists and counsellors, mostly with friends. And, and the, all of these experiences turn you back onto your family and you think, what made me what I am and why did I put up with this? And um, basically, somebody has said to you, there is something unbearable about you. There's something pretty wrong with you. Um, and that's a pretty devastating message to, to hear. Um, and in my case, it was a case of learning to unhear that message. Um, and um, my first wife's family were lovely and very supportive in that way, um, helping me unhear that message. Um, and learning to hear, to, to understand why I, why I was also receptive to that message, why, why I, you know, in the past I'd been also um, aiming bullets at people over uh, uh, people uh, and over their shoulders when I was really aiming them at somebody else. Um, so mm. sorting out the the the, the psychology, the, the kind of complicated makeup of of who we love, what we're attached to, what patterns of behaviour we kind of think is normal, which actually it isn't normal. Um, so for me, it was that, and my faith fell apart during that process. Obviously. I was just about to ask you. I mean, there's yeah. a you and I know that it's a mm. there's there's a happy ending. You're now married to mm. Dizzy. You've got yeah. Isaac and Phoebe, yeah. and they're amazing. And mm. but w at what point there must have been, uh, let's call it the dark night of the soul. There must mm. have been. Well, if that's not real, if that's mm. gone, mm. then what else am I trusting in that I, I simply can't trust? I shouldn't trust. Yes, um, for me, the 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 issue turned on actually just feeling like a, sh uh, a fraud um, and feeling ashamed and so ashamed um, and, and obviously in, in emotionally you're feeling pretty hollow inside um, and I had come to associate church with 
some kind of performance, performance of, of health and success and, and, and generally being chirpy and up for it and that kind of high EQ personality that, that we're all encouraged to have. Um, and I just couldn't do it anymore, so I stopped going. Um, but what I learnt was um, that I could be... I, I learned to go back to bits of myself that I'd not paid much attention to, um, the way I was as a child, and bits of myself that were a bit more anarchic and a bit more um, uh, unruly. Um, and when I had kind of recognised and, and acknowledged those, then going back to church didn't I didn't feel like I was a fraud um, and I ended up going back to a very different kind of church which was uh, kind of less introspective um, and much more concerned with um, liturgy and and you didn't have to worry about who you were inside you just had to do what you did um, and then gradually you do what you do and and it starts to reconnect with what you are inside um, the, the, it felt like having been a piano player who'd had a terrible accident and their fingers had all been broken and coming back to faith again was a bit like being that piano player whose oh. fingers were mending but there was a long painful period when the, the muscles weren't there and the the connections weren't there and so you well, you can tell you're a writer that's an extraordinary illustration yeah we you, you know what i mean and what you hear mm. coming out is clumsy um and painful because it's so bad um but over what gradually you 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 get better and and you start to perform and and maybe you start to perform with a fluency that you 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 didn't have before or maybe you don't maybe there are some bits you can't perform but you maybe you understand the music a bit better uh there's so much i want to talk about with that <laughs> but uh i mean i i'm the thing one of the things that fascinates me is is really what is faith what is what does it look like, taste like, smell like? What's the texture of faith? How do you know when it's riding high? How do you know when you've got some work to do? I suppose one of the things that I've learned so much from you is um, is in the whole area of, of prayer is simply being with God. Um, and you've taught me a lot about contemplation. Um, I think I've always much more emphasised the 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 doingness of prayer if that makes sense a terrible language but um uh that there's something productive happening in this moment but i think i i i'm discovering stillness in mm. a new way mm. in the time that we have left can you help us to pray um <laughs> top tips for prayer but even that sounds like a bit doingy doesn't it mm. yeah it is <laughs> cause it, and effect yeah, you're on your. You, you, it's a very good point. You're sort of on on your own action checklist. Um, yeah. And so, even if you're trying to do it, what's framing what you're trying to do is that thing saying, um, "There's something wrong with me. Um, I must get better. Um, uh, I must perform. Um, I must succeed to win God's approval." Um, mm. uh, and of course, then you don't you don't get anywhere um, if if that's the real if that's the real thing. Um, I found the Ignatian prayer, um, the the examine, very helpful. Maybe because I'm a sort of introspective, ruminative person. Um, I can't do the kind of prayer where you um, sit in silence and, and don't think about much. Um, sometimes that moment comes, but I can't. I'm not very good at trying to make it happen. I need something to 
to chew on, maybe I, uh, something to think over. Um, so the prayer I found most helpful for me is that, that prayer where you look back over over your day um, and you think of, think with God and talk to God about the moments um, where that you're profoundly grateful for. Um, and the gratitude is really important um, because it then frames everything else that, that, that happens. Um, mm. it, instead of coming saying, there's this, 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 this wrong, and I'm under so much pressure and God, you need to fix it. Um, I mean, you do have moments like that. You just have to pray like that. But starting with gratitude um, is opening you up to the various ways in which God is um, already loving you and already with you and at so many different levels. Um, so thank you for my cup of tea. Um, thank you for the fact that when I wake up, there is somebody in the bed with me. Um, thank you for um, uh, the fact that um, I can read a newspaper and all of these, I can live in a world where the news isn't lies um, and, and I, I am at least learning the truth. You know, that all that sort of things, things mm -hmm. that you're grateful for. And then with that basis of gratitude, I think it's you can then look back at your day and notice talk with God about what you found um, moving and touching and helpful and what you found depleting um, is the Ignatian word, um, draining. Um, and that helps you to think about why that was so. Because over the, as you keep doing that, you um, realise there are certain patterns. You always feel depleted when. Um, you always feel depleted around a certain person. Um, mm. And it helps you to be aware of the fact that you're going to need that, that, that some situations are going to be more stressful than others. But the blessing of it is that you, instead of you feeling like you have failed to meet the mark, I mean, you may well have failed to meet the mark, but instead of ultimately you feeling like you failed to meet the mark, what you're sensing is, um, OK, this is something where I feel hard and I feel God's absence and I don't feel particularly close and I feel chilled to my bone and so on um, and when you're communicating that with God then that's actually transforming that experience so rather than it being your deficit um, it comes to be something you can um, talk over with God and reframe um, and it's a bit like the process of therapy that you, you go over the old memories but in the framework of the therapist and that safe setting and somebody you trust. Mm. Um, and it's like you're, re yeah, you're reframing it. Um, like the way sampling works in art, you take a, you take a song from one, a, a line from a song and you, you cut and paste it into a different setting. Mm. And then the, the original line sounds different. Um, I think that's what therapy does. And I think that's really what prayer does. You're, you're reframing things so that you understand them and hold them and deal with them um in a in a in a, in a more gentle way um with, with with god's presence and to me it's just it helps me stop yo-yoing away saying you know um i felt great today thank you god or i felt terrible today where was god um and helping you see that actually god's there all the time um but it's um uh, the the hard times um it enables you to take the hard times and, 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 and try and see him in them and see you and him in them together. So it means, you, means that you're actually less frightened of the hard times. 
you've probably got an inkling of where I'm going to take this now as we close. Um, would you pray? Um, would you close us in prayer? Because uh, uh, I, I'm so struck by that image of the broken-fingered piano player. Mm. And I know that there's at least one person listening to this that, that they feel that that's them. Mm. Would, you, would you help us to pray? Pray for mm. that person? Yeah, sure. Lord, thank you that you went to the cross so that every broken person can have their brokenness made whole in you. And thank you that you went to the cross not to finish the brokenness, but to transform the brokenness into something that is heavenly. So I pray for everybody here who feels they have broken fingers. And I pray that you would help them hear the music they are playing. And help them fall in love with the sound of the music that they can play, even if they're missing some fingers. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for being with me today. Uh, thank you, Jamie. That conversation didn't go where I thought it was going to go, so that's probably a good sign. <laughs> You've been listening to Faith with Haith. I hope you have a great week and uh, stay well. Much love. <laughs>